Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey folks, so this is part two of our talk with Steve Link about his new book, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited, where we go from 1995 up until 2002 and Pete Sampras' retirement. You can find the link for uh, this book in the description and be sure to also check part one uh, if you just got into this episode right now. So, yep, have a great one. What do you think about the matchup between uh, Sampras and Agassi that, like, for example... Um, would have maybe given a little bit of an advantage of to to Sampras because as you guys have mentioned in uh, as you've written also in the book, Agassi have been coming off of a very good stretch for himself, but still losing to to Sampras. Though there was something maybe um, if it's the matchup, is it just the mentality that Sampras has? Sampras says in the book uh, probably Agassi was thinking this or that, but obviously we we don't know from Agassi exactly what he was thinking. But um, how would you say that? the reason why Sampras got the the upper hand on Agassi, especially even in, a, in such an occasion like this one? Well, I think part of it was he's just a better big occasion player. He knew how to prime for the big occasion. Secondly, he, he at his best was always going to beat Agassi at his best. And he alluded, for instance, as we're talking about 95, to losing the Agassi in Canada. He won the first set and lost. That was a, a, a three-set final mm -hmm. that he lost. And it didn't terribly disturb him. He knew he probably could have tried to close him in straight, but didn't manage to do it. But he also knew that, the, again, the open was what he, where he really wanted to flourish. Oh. I think Agassi maybe wasn't as good at peaking for the majors. And also, in the back of his mind, he was always scared. If Pete peaks, if Pete's at his very best, how am I going to stop him? If he's serving at his best, and Gilbert says in the book, he never got a read. He never got a beat on Pete serve. He could never really figure out his whole career. So there were some obvious advantages. Now, on the other hand, in fairness, Agassi had one of the great returns of all time, certainly the best of his time. He had as a package the best, you could argue, the best ground game in tennis, you know, in terms of a baseline rally, what he could do off both sides. You know, there was nowhere to go. He'd hit forehands, you know, with, with tremendous pace and precision. His two-hander was impeccably produced. And he just was a, you know, he, you had to get him out of those rhythmic rallies. For sure. So I would, I would say uh, that Sampras just was more complete, and they both knew it. The question was if Agassi wanted, had to feel that if he could get him on an off day, that was the mm. key. You know, he had to feel like he was going to be a little bit off his game, uh, and, and then maybe he could pounce, which he did many times on lesser occasions. And he did it very well in beating him in the 95 Australian, too. But uh, the other four major finals all went to yeah. Pete Sampras. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned, obviously, Pete Sampras is, is uh, the player of the 90s with his record over all of his other adversaries is, 
you know, pretty, 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 is a pretty decisive record against all of his rivals. And we, we get to 96 where we see that there are on, on any given day, like maybe one or two players that can serve him off the court or maybe can, uh, could, could do that. And we, we saw that in, in 96 when Philip Pustis took him out at the, the, uh, Australian open. And then, uh, we, so like talk a little bit about 96, because I feel like, uh, you know, 96 was also a really good opportunity. Like maybe if he had, you know, put in his mind, like as a goal, like, like a target, like some of the other players have done, like Federer or Djokovic to really aim for that French open. And, uh, you know, and didn't quite get it because he ran into, uh, Kefalnikov in the semis and he would have had a pretty favorable matchup against Michael Steech in the, in the final. Yeah, Stichka, they, they, you know, they had a tough rivalry career-wise. I think Michael might have ended up 5-4. You know, however, Pete was not scared of playing Michael Stich. And what would have been great about playing him at the French that year was it wouldn't have, He was exhausted after three five-setters on his way to Gafelnikov. Todd Martin, Bruguera, and Courier all took him to five, but he came through. And if he would have gotten by Gafelnikov, I think he would have felt physically... The Steak match was ideal because they weren't going to have a ton of long rallies. They both were going to do a fair amount of attacking, a lot of attacking. So, yes, but, you know, that was a very tight. The, the problem the problem was circumstantial. You alluded to the start of the year. He loses to Philip Pousses. That was sort of leftover weariness from the end of 95 because we didn't talk about the Davis Cup final. At the oh, end of right. That. Davis Cup final. Yeah, I missed that. He'd won the Open, and he would have liked to sort of put his feet up a little bit for the end of that year, but there was more work to be done, and he closed out the year number one. He didn't win the year-end championships, but it didn't matter, and then he didn't know if he was going to play Davis Cup singles originally because it looked like being on indoor clay, they might go with Gullickson, the captain might go with Jim Courier and Andre Agassi, but Agassi was still hurting both physically and mentally from the Open. Went over there, but didn't play. So Pete's called into action. He wins all three matches, two singles and a doubles, mm-hmm. Collapsed on the court at the end of his match with Chesnikov and still came and won, still won it in five and won the doubles the next day and beat Kafelnikov to clinch the Davis Cup for the U.S., which was a big deal. But it left him kind of exhausted. So when he went to Australia and lost to Philip Pousas, he just wasn't there hadn't been enough lag time to, for, for him. That, that was bad luck in a sense that he was still drained from the 95 season. And then, you know, he had some decent results in that. No doubt he was playing well in winning a lot of tournaments in, in 96, but also Tim Gullickson passed away. Passed away. Finally after the so there was all that, which was only about three weeks before the French. Mm. And so he really didn't come in in great shape into the French, and yet he won those three five-setters. So I, I still agree, despite the fact that his conditioning was not at its peak, that it was a, it was a great chance to win it. And he only lost two matches to Kafelnikov. One of them was at the World Team Cup a couple of weeks before the French, right before the French, and then this semifinal, the French, he beat him every other time they played in their careers. So that was bad luck in a way. And, and it came again on an imp- a impossibly oppressive afternoon where he had the hat on. He wasn't feeling great in the extreme heat. So, yes, those 94 and 96 were, were big opportunities to have come away with the Roland Garros title. And again, he could never know that he was never really going to get close again after he lost to Yevgeny. But For sure. he did, he, then he lost. Then he lost, of course, at the Wimbledon '96. Was the he ran into a red-hot Richard Krychek in a rain-delayed match. It was you know Krychek outserved him on that particular day. And then then we come to the Open. Of course, that that became another one of his the most memorable moments or tournaments of his career in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, just one thing before I, before we get to that uh, poignant moment, 
Um, I was going to add that uh, Sampras would have really loved the French Open if it was played this year. I think in the cooler conditions and the, yeah. maybe the roof would have helped him. Yeah. Uh, like although, that. You're right. Although he would often say that he kind of liked it. He didn't mind. What he really kind of liked the best was maybe about 82 degrees or 80 degrees. Hot enough so that hot. the conditions yeah. were fine, But not so hot that it just kind of bottled him up physically. So it's, but you're right. He certainly wouldn't have had to deal with the heat. And I think the bottom line is I think he, he was good enough to have won a French. And I think if he had given it special total emphasis in a given year and maybe decided he was even going to lessen his chances to win Wimbledon to go all out and play more on clay. But it, it just didn't happen. It didn't happen, which was too bad because I think he had the game to win a French or two. I, I think he showed that in a number of occasions with all those quarterfinals and then the, the semifinal in 96. And he kept losing to like eventual winners. Yeah, that yeah. happened often. Happened often because obviously in '96 Kafelnikov did go on to win it. So you know that there's no doubt about it. Uh, he he, uh, you know he 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 was a very worthy competitor there. And and I just <laughs> think and I don't think he sold himself short. I just don't think he got the best of breaks there, and it just didn't it didn't break for him. And then of course in the back of his mind, he always knew Wimbledon was around the corner, and that's the one by that he wanted by far of the four majors. That's the one that so, meant the most yeah. to him. For sure. And so, I mean, just really quickly before the U.S. Open, the the, the Krychek uh, loss that he had in the quarterfinals. I mean, how surprising and how what was the public sentiment of that one compared to maybe was that like the biggest Wimbledon upset that we've potentially ever seen? Or, or was that second to maybe the one he lost to Bastel? Oh, I'd say, say Bastel was a bigger one. But yeah, it was it was surprising. Obviously, again, Krychek went on to win the title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was worthy. He was a great grass court player in his way. He almost could have won. It was dangerous again two years later when he lost that, that hard-fought five-setter to to Ivanisevic in the semifinals. He or he and Pete could have ended up playing the finals in '98. But yeah, he kind of caught everybody off guard. Nobody was fully prepared for that. It was weird because they started in it was gray and kind of rain hadn't quite come, and Sampras had all these break points in the first set that he couldn't convert and. Then they came back and Krejci kind of erupted at the end of the first set with some great passing shots and won that set 7-5. And then he got up two sets and they had to come back the next day. That There'd been another, it was crazy. Long rain delays the first day. Then they had to sleep on it overnight and Krejci finished it off the next day. So it wasn't ideal for either player to have to play in such a disrupted way with so much rain and so much time off the court. And, and I think that Pete just, maybe his time has come. He'd won He'd won three in a row. In the back of your mind, you're thinking sooner or later somebody might pick you off. You know, you can only keep those streaks going for so long. So that might have affected him a bit, too. And, uh, yeah, so it was a strange position to be in because he'd lost to two big servers, Filipousis and Krychek, in Australian Wimbledon. In between, he'd lost that semifinal like a family in the French. He was playing well, yeah. but he didn't have a major. Winning all these mm-hmm. tournaments comes to the open and now there's extra pressure on him because he really does not want to leave 96 yeah. without a major. He still looked like clearly the best player in the world. And Agassi had, had slipped considerably from where he was in 95. Right. So he didn't, uh, he didn't really have a chief challenger at the top so much. Chang had a great year and threatened to be number one, but Pete was really, you know, still being regarded as the best, but he had to prove it at the mm-hmm. open to himself and to the, to the, uh, to the world. Yeah, obviously in that open, we saw him, uh, we saw the epitome of heart and grit and, you know, the the distinguished fighting spirit uh, was 
was heavily exuded in that quarterfinal uh, marathon that he had with Krychek where he saved a match point and he went to the back fence and puked and he was so low on energy and it was such a, like one of those US Open hot days where uh, against a really formidable uh, opponent who was really good on clay and made two French Open finals, but also, you know, someone who could really make rallies super long and brutal and physical and make Sampras earn it the hard way. So, I mean, what was that match like for you? Uh, yeah, the time? It, was, it was painful to watch it in a lot of ways because you could see he was how much he was suffering. But right. it started, of course, where he just hadn't really gauged properly when the, when they were going to start. It was a match in the afternoon that went longer than he expected. He hadn't eaten enough or it certainly hadn't put enough fluids in his body. Right. And you saw him kind of struggling in the first set. And Karecha was set points, have a chance to close the first set out, didn't do it. And Pete squeezed out that set and you thought he'd be all right. And then he lost the next two long, hard fought sets, you know, five and five and Missed a few overheads at the end of the third, and you thought, oh, boy, you know, you could see him struggling. And then he comes back and wins the fourth, gets the early break, and they go into the fifth. And that's when, of course, you know, they went to the tie break, and that's when he he threw up at at the back of the court. The rules being as cruel as they are, he got a – the umpire kind of had to warn him. And so basically he had to walk up to the the baseline to serve, stand behind the baseline, hit his serve. At, at, at like half speed just to make sure he started the point or else he was going to get him more, you know, penalized more. Yeah. And uh, that was tough. That was tough to watch because you could see that while the point was going on, the adrenaline carried him and he, he moved well throughout that tie break. But then, you know, he, he, you, you, as soon as the point would end, he'd be slumped over his racket. It was like, Oh my God, how, how can I do this again? How do I, <laughs> Where do I find the strength to play another point? I, you know, he's just killing himself. Yet he knew the finish line was close. He knew, obviously, it was much better than getting into a 10-8 in the fifth or a 12-10 or a prolonged fifth set and playing it out. And the Open at that time... Thank God for the tiebreak at 6 Yeah, right. That's how he felt. It was the only one at that time to to have a fifth set tiebreak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, it all came to a head at the end when he was down match point. He'd had a match point which he didn't convert. Then he went down match point and, and, and had a, he came in and he had to play a tough low forehand volley and it looked like Karecha had him passed. But he guessed right and he lunged to his right and made a little forehand drop volley winner and the crowd went crazy. And then, you know, and, and then he ends up hitting a, a second serve ace to get to match point. You know, that was very gutsy. You know, he missed the first serve, which he hit kind of weakly and just said, I'm going for the second sliced it out wide, caught him leaning the wrong way, and then Karecha double faulted on match point. And that was, there was sort of an eerie silence when Karecha hit the second serve, and suddenly you heard the old Cyclops machine, mm. the beep oh. of the Cyclops machine. It was an amazing moment. And that kind of yeah, confirmed that the that. match was over. It, it, it was not one of the best played matches he's ever been involved with, but easily one of the most dramatic. And again, parallel to Courier in 95 Australian is that they saw him, they literally saw the... This time they saw him get sick on a court. So once again, this notion that it all came so easily, they could see that he was fighting for his life to somehow survive this ordeal. And Karecha making him play pretty much a clay court match to a large extent, particularly on Karecha's serve, not on Sampras's, but on Karecha's serve, getting in these long rallies, looping the ball up high to Pete's backhand, making it hard for him to get to the net. It it was more on Karecha's terms, and that just made it even tougher mentally and physically, but he somehow found a way through it. And then luckily had two days off 
That was mm. Wednesday against Krejci. Got then Friday off, came back Saturday, beats Ivanisevic in four sets, and then had another one of those crucial matches to play Michael Chang in the finals because Michael could have gone to number one. Michael was, you know, going through an, you know, he'd been through an impressive period, having been in the French final the year before and having lost to Becker in the in the finals of the Australian at the start of that year. He was really doing very well in all the majors. hadn't won one since the '89 French, but he was really constantly knocking on the door. And uh, they had a nice about a three-hour rain delay after the women's final, and then they got out. And that I think was a was perfect for Sampras. It, it was more of an evening final instead of a hot four o'clock final and the rain cooled things off a bit and made it more comfortable and he blitzed through the first two sets one and four and eventually finished it off in a tie break in the third and i think that was a very there was a real sense of relief to tuck that title away because yeah, again because all so in the semifinals he was up uh, he was in a position to win that match in straight sets yeah. i remember and then yeah. And then he was frustrated at himself for not having gotten off the court quicker, and he lost that tiebreak to Ivan Isovich, and then he had to play a fourth set. And then he almost lost the third set in the final to Chang as well, because he was down yeah. the point. And then yeah. he saved was, that up. Nice. Yeah, it was frustrating, the Ivan Isovich semi, because he went up, you know, he, he had 6-2 in the tiebreak, and right. yeah. um, he was killing him in the tiebreak, and, and, and serving, actually, at 6-3, the chance to close it out on, that's what it was, really, 6-3 serving. And he, and he, and he uh, you know, he even this which hit a passing shot about 130 miles an hour past him on the first one. And then he double followed on the second and eventually lost that tiebreak. He was very upset with himself. But four set, you know, Gorin had a few chances, but not many. And then Pete eventually broke for 5-3 and served it out. So it didn't get out of hand. But what, what I don't think he ever thought he would lose the match. But I think he was right. annoyed because he wanted to get off the court. He was the second semi. Chang had beaten Agassi to open the day. So Correct. he just wanted to get off the court and get his rest mm -hmm. time into the final. So that's it was more that kind of agitation, aggravation than any kind of fear that he was going to lose that match. There's was this also the time they had back-to-back, -back, like they had a semifinal Saturday and then a final Sunday? Or was there a day off? In, in oh, yeah, no, yeah. no day off. No Super day Saturday. Off. No day off. So that, that's brutal. That's yeah. brutal, yeah. Women were behind, so they were playing their final on Sunday rather than Super yeah. Saturday. And... And that meant they would start first, but then as soon as the Graf Sellis final was over, Graf winning, uh, the, the, the rain just bucketed down. And that's what delayed, Pete and Michael were supposed to get started almost right away, and that delayed them by two and a half to three hours. So, But it, 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 as I say, I think it was, he always loved playing at night. Sampras loved the night matches and, and, and was almost invincible. He was pretty much invincible at night, so it was to his advantage to play Michael in those conditions. Plus, he'd beaten him under the lights in 93 in the quarters in a mm. big match. Had that memory. Uh, there was, a, there was, was one thing that I, th I find is uh, it's, it's quite commendable in the sense for, for, for big players, uh, the ones that we say are the greatest of all time. is the fact that um, as he, he loses the match to, uh, to Krajicek, even though he say like uh, it's something that it's bound to happen in a sense after you dominate so much that it, they, they, these tweaks can only last for so long. But... Um, um, to come back and, and winning the U.S. Open in such a dramatic fashion, almost like a tournament-wise, and then even if it's in the back of his mind, well, I won Wimbledon three times, and sometime at some point this is going to happen that I'm going to lose. Comes back for another four years straight to win Wimbledon again. Right. I think right. it's quite an impressive feat for uh, for a champion to bounce back for, from such uh, tough tough losses like this. 
And just to add, I think it might have helped that he had uh, someone who sees the macro picture so well in the game, like Paul Anacone. Because mm. I often listen to Paul Anacone on Tennis Channel, and I think he just puts things into perspective so so nicely, and he really sees the bigger picture. And I think Pete has always been about, you know, even right from the junior days when he wasn't achieving as much in juniors, I always, you can see in the book that he always had a long-term view. And he always yeah. had that conviction that, you know, it was going to come eventually and he might have to wait it out and tough it out and go through those ups and downs. And eventually he was going to have his way. And he was so strong willed about that. Yeah, you, you size it up well. He was a good, it was a very good fit. Obviously, Gullickson was a great fit. And Anacone <laughs> was in a very tough position when he started off stepping in at the 95 yeah. strength. Stepped in that after was... Gullickson went home. They wanted to have somebody to help Pete out. And then he continued to travel with him. And, they, and Pete and Tim would talk on the phone. So in a sense, everything had been set up for Paul in yeah. terms of Pete's game. The tennis was there. There wasn't much to tamper with. He did sure. encourage to serve and volley more in the second serve as the years went on. But I don't think he had that much to do. It was more of a tactical. He could help him tactically, and he could help him reinforce the big pictures you said. It was yeah. a perfect fit because he, he had the same kind of a disposition, easygoing disposition. And I, I think that... That worked out remarkably well. And he, as I say, came in under difficult circumstances, and then they just started to click together the way you would have expected. And and it, it was almost seamless, the transition from Gullickson to Anacone. They both did magnificent jobs. Yeah, and then, and then, you know, obviously we continue on, and we see it 97, and... You know, '97. I think I don't want to spend too much time on because I feel like it was a it was a decisive year for him, where he was able to he had that final against Moya, and then he won Wimbledon uh, over Pialin again. Yeah, Moya in Australia, Pialin at Wimbledon. That's right. And then he had a little bit of a. I think he lost early in in the U.S. Open to Corda. Lost to Corda right? in the fourth round. The fourth round. That's one of the few times. He didn't close out a match when he should have, in the sense that he went up three love in the fifth set. One break, only one break, but normally... That was a fifth set tie-break loss, right? Yeah, he lost, eventually lost in the tie-break. It's not like he collapsed, but mm. normally if he's up three love, he holds three more times and that, that's it. It's yeah. done. Court had played a brilliant match. Court had also taken him to five sets in Wimbledon that earlier in the summer. On right, court, right. gave him his toughest match at that 97 Wimbledon, but... Uh, yeah, it was, that, that was just a very good year all around. I, I only bring up the quarter match because I think had he won it, uh, he probably would have won. Quarter was some of his best tennis, but I think that tournament was almost surely going to be his. I think Quarter yeah. was the only player in that field that could have beaten him because he was such a brilliant shot maker, left-hander, flashy. He had one of his great days. If he doesn't win that, no doubt in my mind that Pete would have gone on to win that tournament and, and have had his only three-major year. Sure. Yeah. Um, so 97, and that also coincided, I think, with uh, with Agassi slumping down all the way to 141 yeah, that's uh, right. rankings, and and then obviously, I mean, I mean, 98, I think, was such a pivotal year because that was the sixth year in a row that he finished the year uh, number one, and that's to this day that's such a remarkable record that none of the big three have. I mean, Djokovic could obviously get the sixth. Uh, he's in good position to get the sixth this year, but not in a row. Well, and, that's just it's it's tougher in a row, just like it was. Tougher for Bjorn Borg to get the five in a row, and Becker to eventually win five. No, it's 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 really hard to keep that going. And yeah, and for Roger as well, two thousand four to two thousand seven, and then two thousand eight, he yeah. didn't get it. Two thousand nine, he did. Right, right. So you know, it's it's 
the streaks are the streaks are, are are hard to pull off, and obviously Djokovic will not be able to equal that, and mm-hmm. we won't oh. see it from half our either. But here's the thing about that that's important to remember as we look back on that '98 season is that sure. it started off, and again, I think you know he had played a lot in the fall of '97. He wasn't that fresh when he went to a, you know the start of '98. You know, losing to Kuchera in the Australian, he just wasn't that yeah. fresh or that eager. And 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 it kind of set a bad tone in a way. I mean, he wasn't down on himself or anything, but I don't think he was enjoying his tennis as much. But he did set this goal. He, at a certain point, somewhere that in early in the year, he decided, "I I really want number one in the. I want to end this year number one. Nobody's ever done this six years. I want to do it." And right. it actually got it got in his way at times. Mm. Unfortunately for him, he pulled out a gritty five setter with Goran Ivanovic at Wimbledon, one of the most impressive victories to me that he ever recorded because Goran. Sure. Talk about that match. <laughs> well, you know, Gorn had beaten Krychek 15-13 in the fifth in the semis. And Gorn, you know, this was now his, he's now in his third final. He's lost to Agassi in 92-5. and five. He's lost to Pete. He's 7-6, seven, 7-6, six, seven, six, six, love in the 94 final. Maybe the best final Sampras played right. him. You measure it in efficiency and, and big point uh, prowess. Was, you could argue it was... It was Aside from the 99, win, 99, which was the best match he's ever played, period, I, I'd say it was his best. And then uh, and now we come to 98, and I think Goran thought it was going to be his day, and, and, and Pete talks about it in the book, you know, it was one of those days where he kind of was thinking during this match, you know, this might not be my day. You know, he, he wasn't giving up, but he was getting a little negative because he lost the, he lost the first in a tiebreak. They go to the tiebreak and the second. He squeaks it out after saving two set points with second serves to Goran's backhand. And right. that's pretty dangerous, pretty dangerous to be down to a second serve on set mm-hmm. point twice. But he, he kept his cool, typical of him, didn't double fall it away, made Goran come up with something, and Goran couldn't do it. So Stampers wins the second, takes the third. Then Ivanisovic erupts in the middle of the fourth with these four brilliant winners in a row to break serve, and he wins the fourth. But Sampras really pulled away in the fifth, you know, and he won in the last four games. He won 16 of 19 points. And I think even this was maybe got a little tired, but Sampras just really, once he got the break to go in the fifth, he was unstoppable mm-hmm. again. But he said he felt, he actually felt kind of badly for even this. He said he felt a little sheepish because he, he knew, yeah. he knew, he felt like he'd been outplayed. I don't really agree. I think they both had a lot of chances. Mm-hmm. I don't think either one necessarily outplayed the other, but. The bottom line is he was the better uh, big point player. And, you know, he, he pulled himself out of real danger in the second set tiebreak, completely outplayed him in the third, got caught off guard by a brilliant burst of shot making from Gorin in the fourth, and then beat him decisively in the fifth. But it was the only five set final he's ever played at a major. Just like when you go back to 96, he'd never won a major from match point down anywhere in the course of the tournament like he did when he beat Karecha. Yeah. Out of here in 98, he's suddenly in his one and only five-set final, and, and he came through very nicely there. But that was critical in terms of going for number one, because as he would say later in the year, he wouldn't have really felt like he deserved it. Even if he'd had the points, let's say he'd lost to Gorn in the finals of Wimbledon, but he still would have been in contention for number one. Uh, but, you know, as it turned out, he lost in the semis of the Open to Raptors. So he would have felt like, if I don't win one of the four majors, do I really deserve to be number one? I don't think he would have felt that way. But because he won Wimbledon, he felt it, he had validated himself. Mm. And, but it was so tough for him after losing to Raptors at the Open, we got a little injured, to 
he just played like crazy through the fall, tournament after tournament to get the points, much more than he wanted to play. And losing yep. some frustrating matches along the way, like Wayne Ferreira and a match with Stoltenberg and where he broke his racket, which was totally unlike him. And, you know, in Stockholm, you know, he shocked the fans and shocked himself. But he was just sort of at his wit's end. Uh, it wasn't enjoying being in Europe for these dark days, you know, early nights, you know, dreary, dreary at that time of the year, not enjoying it. And finally, he clinched it in the year end championships and got the reward. But he won four tournaments that year. And of all the years at number one, that was that was the least impressive. He'd be the first to admit it. But I, I think the reason was. The, the, the obsession with being number one for six years in a row, mm-hmm. it made him a little tighter than he would have been. I think he would have won more matches, but he just didn't want that prize to elude his grasp. And in the end, it didn't. And it was a, it was very enormously, immensely rewarding for him to accomplish that, in, which he talks about in the book. I think it's interesting uh, uh, yeah. for, from one aspect that um, it's, it's not necessarily minor to Sampras, but his, his second serve that... Uh, You've mentioned a few times in the book as well how uh, uncharacteristically of him would be like to not serve matches out or to even like serve double faults at untimely moments. But his second serve was 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 a huge weapon of his. Uh, at some points, like he was an averaging like maybe 10 miles per hour less than his first. And yeah. uh, I, yeah. I was just thinking how how high standards you would have to be thinking. Oh, I was I was not really having my day, but still being a player that could topple others with his, his, his powerful game, his, his mentality, his um, just purely clinical even attitude on, on, on court. It's, I think it's just um, amazing that he's able to pull, pull out so many crazy records, so many unbelievable um, things, even when he's uh, having so much pressure even behind from, from his own um, personal achievements that he wants to, to, to get to. So, yeah. And I think that yeah. Well, uh, oh yeah, no. I was just gonna say the the mentality to like um, keep his his keep his cool, and even um, not serve uh, a few double faults here and there, like in untimely moments, and lose that serve at that time. I think it's it's a pretty impressive feat of of Sampras's, like in in my eyes. Yeah, listen, I think you're right, and but part of it was just because he was such a a uh, unassailable big point big match player that's why you didn't see too often at big Mm. moments the other thing that happened is he always had a great second serve but during the Gullickson years sometimes Gullickson really wanted him to come in more behind the second serve on hard courts and he would do it on grass but on hard sometimes he Mm. wouldn't and guys could get away with blocking returns back deep down the middle or in the case of an Edberg chip and charge even and so he wasn't getting the as much uh, of an, uh, wasn't being rewarded as much as he should have been for a great second yeah. serve. Then he started serving volley much more in 97 on. You saw him serving and volleying on almost every second serve on, on hard courts or grass, indoors. No longer was it just on the grass. And the, when he did that, he number one, he started his volleying improved, improved significantly. He became an even greater volleyer. And he also starting add, adding a lot of MPHs to the second serve. It got bigger and bigger. He just became more and more confident with that second serve as the, in the latter stages of his career, you know, when we got to the late ni- late 90s. And it was pretty astonishing what he, what he could do. 
And it had already had been great, even as early as 93. Courier was the one saying to Gullickson after losing that Wimbledon final to Sampras, how do you beat a guy that has two first serves? He's got two first Mm -hmm. serves. And Billie Jean said something similar in the book. You know, he had two first serves. And in, in, in essence, he did. And there's never been anything quite like it because it was controlled aggression, too. There was nothing reckless about it. Sometimes, you like you see Sasha Zarev yeah. going for 135s on the second serve, you feel like you're, he's, you're scared. You're like, Oof. yeah, you're rolling the dice. Yeah. He's like, I hope this goes in. If it doesn't go in, fine. But it, he didn't. He, he ah. doesn't really know, and he's he's gambling. Yeah. He never felt that Pete was gambling. gambling very much. He knew, he knew exactly what he was doing. And you're right, double faults. You didn't worry about double faults. But he did, he, as you said, he didn't want it to be at an untimely mm-hmm. moment. And I will never forget hearing Agassi after losing to Sampras in the 99 Cincinnati, where Sampras lost one service game and, and beat him in straight. He said, I never got a look at that. I never got a look at that, sir. And he, I, I had no clue. And he said, and the one time I did break him, he just decided to serve three double faults. What he meant by that was obviously it wasn't yeah. intentional. I had nothing <laughs> yeah. to do with it. He just yeah. served three doubles. So it didn't give Agassi any confidence at all that he'd had anything to do with provoking the double faults. He just felt like he was totally at his mercy. Yeah. 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 Uh, And he was definitely at his mercy in the, in the 99 season. Yeah. Uh, And won Wimbledon and possibly the best match he's ever played. uh, I think I've seen all the big ones. I really believe it was because they're locked at three all in the first set, and they're both playing really well. And Sampras had had one little opening where it looked like he might break, and that, but Agassi pulled out of it with some good serving himself. And Sampras is down love forty, and then he just played five spectacular points in a well, in a row, and hit you know some great first serves, perfectly placed, and some a huge second serve thrown in as well. And so he wins five straight points from love forty to hold and. He really never looked back because he broke in the next game, closed this, you know, suddenly in, in the space of a few minutes, he'd gone from three all love 40 to winning the first set 6-3 in the blink of an eye. And then he immediately went up a break in the second and protected that. And finally at five all in the third, he broke him one more time and served it out. And the standard was 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 astounding because I don't think, I, frankly, I don't think Agassiz ever played better on a grass court than he did that day, even in, in winning it seven years earlier. But Sampras was just at a phenomenally high mm. level, uh, really the whole match, but particularly from three all in the first yeah. set, com- coming back from Love 40 to the end yeah. of the match. Guys, would you would you guys start like to yeah. move on to uh, the 2000s and uh, the, the end of uh, Sampras' yeah, career? We're, we're, yeah, yes, we're actually on that. Now. Sure. But I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, we, we talked about the 99 and then unfortunately for him, I think... Uh, he started. He had a really good summer after the '99 Wimbledon, uh, and then he got he injured, a, and I think that just threw well, him for, off a lot. First of all, he'd won Queens right before Wimbledon, which was helpful because right. he hadn't won a tournament yet that year. That was sort of the the after effects of that hard '98 campaign to get number one. It left him exhausted. He didn't even play the Australian at the start of '99. So then he really gets going. Wins Queens. Wins Wimbledon. Goes to LA. Beats Agassi in a two tie break final. Goes to Cincinnati and knocks off Krychek in the quarters, Agassi in the semis, and Rafter in the final. That was quite a trio for him at that time to topple, and he did it. Then he finally lost to Vince Spady in a match where he had to retire, you know, the next tournament. But it was like he was primed for the Open because prior to that, he'd won four tournaments in a row. And then he hurt his back 
practicing with keratin a couple of days before the tournament started out on, on site and had to pull out with a herniated disc in his back. That was, that was really bad luck because he, uh, he, he knew he was, he was going to have a great chance to win the U.S. Open that year the way he was playing. I think it was some of the best tennis. You know, I would say 97, and 97 really almost throughout the season. And then that stretch in 99 from Queens through uh, Cincinnati, that, those, that, that was the best tennis he's ever played in my view. And then he comes back. The thing to add quickly to 99 before we get to 2000. He wins the championships. He wins the year. After, what happened was he, he went to Paris for his first event right. in a few weeks earlier. He hadn't played since before the Open. And he hurt his back. He kind of re-aggravated it. He got hurt again, you know. And But he told his trainer on the way home, you know, not only am I going to be playing in Hanover, for the, but I'm going to win it. Mm. He was so determined, and he and and midweek he lost to Agassi two and two in the round robin. This again yeah. gets back to priming for the big matches because again he wasn't sharp that day, and Agassi took full advantage of him and methodically took him apart with his with his great returns and his accuracy from the baseline. But then they meet again in the finals, and Sampras crushed him in straight sets in the final. And I I just think that was more evidence. The same court, same tournament. But the second time around, with the stakes much higher, he comes through. So in that, that season, he beat Agassi in the Wimbledon final, L.A., Cincinnati, and the year ends and lost to one match at the year ends. So he has a 4-1 and one record against him. And even though Agassi was ranked number one in the world, I still think Sampras was the better player. But he lost some time sure. with, the, with the injury. Yeah, no doubt about it. And then we get to 2000 to 2002, where, you know, he wins three more titles after that. He wins Miami. Uh, over Quirin yeah. in 2000, right. and he wins Wimbledon in the Wimbledon in 2000. Then, of course, has to wait another two years, and then he he gets that open. But in 2000, I mean, do we start to see him? How do we start seeing the decline of Sampras um, in in 2000? Well, you know, he started off the year and he lost a heartbreaker to Agassi in the semis of Australia, despite 37 yeah. aces. He was two points away from winning in a four-set tiebreaker. Yeah. He'd hurt himself earlier in the match. It's hard to know if he would have been fully fit for the final against Kafelnikov, but that was a tough break, and it kind of messed him up early in the season. But then he did win Miami, as you mentioned, over Keratin. Mm -hmm. And that was yeah. a nice win. And, and uh, yeah, he, it was just getting harder. He, he, first of all, he was targeting that major. He could well have won the 13th major in Australia, but by not beating Agassi and many, he was now still pushing hard for it at Wimbledon. And... Uh, that put a, then and then of course he was just maybe a bit more injury prone at that mm. stage because he uh, he you know he hurt that he had that that injury to ankle heel you know the, he ended up having to get an injection after his match with Kuchera in the in the second round he went and got it he, he got an MRI to make sure that they could even be a, could possibly play at all and the doctors gave him the green light but it meant an injection before every match to deal with this injury this leg injury and and. Uh, that was not easy psychologically, not being able to practice at all and then having to go out there knowing that the injection was going to wear off after about 75 minutes, that he was going to have right. to put on adrenaline the rest of the way. But he managed to have he had a nice draw. Draw kind of opened up and he beat Gimelstab and Bjorkman and eventually Gamble in the quarters and Vladimir Volchkov is a qualifier. You know, he got all the way to the semis and with a loophole in the draw and that, but then suddenly in the final, he's in another league playing Rafter. You know, sure. it, 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 Rafter, of course, has won the U.S. Open in 97 and 98. And 
he he was a, a, a kind of a dawning adversary at that stage, especially if you're worried about playing on one leg. <laughs> and, and it was it was very dramatic because Sampras lost kind of an agony. I thought he outplayed him in the first set, and he had a couple of set points in the tie break, but he couldn't quite put him away. He had more break, many more break point opportunities, and he just was not able to secure that set as he probably should have. And his parents had flown over, and I think he really wanted to break the record and have them see him do it. And and then, of course, they, they'd been delayed by rain. They'd had a long delay, and then they had another, they had another long delay at, late in the first set. And uh, so his came to a crunch. It was so similar to Ivan Istovich in 98. You want to draw parallels. Yeah. Once again, he's down a set. And they are being down two sets to love. Danger two sets of in this case he's down four one it's not set points like it was with Gorin, but but rafter is serving with a four one lead rafter so called Raft- the choke after the match is that Excuse correct me? rafter had said that he had choked after he the match in the book yeah he said it in the book he didn't say it yeah. so much at the time as mm-hmm. he did in in, in the interview right. for the book yeah he was very hard on himself right. but if you looked at the points Yes and no. I mean, yeah. you know, he, he double-faulted off the net court. It was a little bit of bad luck. It bounced off the net court and, and didn't land. It could have gotten a break with that. Then right. Sam played a good point and forced him an error on the volley. Then Rafter had an opening for a forehand pass, but that was not his shot. His ba- He was yeah. better off the backhand wing. And Sampras outplayed him from there. He had a great passing shot off the forehand to go up 6-4 and one at 7-5. You could argue how much it was his choking, how much it was Pete lifting his game to Regardless, it was a big, big psychological difference to be back at one set all and not down two sets. And that's where Rafter felt like he'd done himself in. But, of course, there's the difference between a great, great all-time champion and a and a really good, terrific player, Hall of Famer, two majors, but not quite on the same level, you know, of, of greatness. Because if that if if that Sampras, he's he's down if he's if he's down two sets to love, he's worried and disappointed and. But he, he wouldn't have, I don't think his outlook would have been the same as Rafter's would. Rafter pr- thought he had really kind of done himself in. It was still one set, it was still one set all. But yeah. in his mind, he was pretty much gone. And then he saw Sampras coming on so strong in the third set, he could feel him lifting his spirits, lifting his game. And Sampras played really well the last two sets, and it was getting darker and darker. And I think, you know, he felt like, it was just interesting to get the two perspectives. He felt like he pretty much hit the zone the last two sets. While Rafter felt like, you know, he, he had just ruined his own chances and was psychologically right. defeated. Mm-hmm. That's why it was fun to go to both players every time to get the different viewpoints. But I just found the, that there was this thread running through the pages of this book of the different guys explaining the likes of Todd Martin in Australia in 94, other opponents, or even Istovich, explaining their own frailties and why, why things went wrong for them without, was still giving Pete a lot of credit. But yeah. it, but you see, like, Sampras doesn't ever make excuses for him, There's, and he didn't have any need to. And he understood what it took uh, to win these big matches. So it was no accident uh, that it happened. But you're right. Rafter was very, very hard on himself and as he felt it slipping mm. away. Uh, so uh, just yeah. just a moment. Here. It's like uh, I would I would have loved to talk about, like, for example, the Masters at the end of the year where uh, in 2000 where he um curtain became the the only man to beat agassi and sampras back to back in the same well, tournament we should probably talk about the open before i that, think actually. i think not actually so, we should we should oh, oh, sorry i'm great i'm uh, is right let's oh yeah sure. we'll get to the year 
But let's go first to the Open. What do you want to know about the Open, Vach? So I think, um, you know, I'm, I was watching a little bit of the highlights this morning of his uh, U.S. Open final with Safin. Yes, and yes. I could not help but think, uh, just looking at the scoreline and looking at the situation and the and both players involved, it reminded me so much, if we're talking again about parallels, it reminded me a lot of Federer versus Chilich at the 2014 U.S. Open semifinal. Yeah, very Except similar. That, yeah. Uh, you know, similar type of opponent in Stefan and, and Chilich, big first strike tennis, uh, really good. And I, I just didn't think that uh, as much as Sampras was running on fumes, I think, at that point, and uh, he was he kept coming to the net and he kept... He kept on net rushing and he kept on going, uh, you know, playing uh, uh, serve and volley off the first and second serve. And, uh, and and it just didn't seem to to ever work because Safin would always pick him apart with the passing shots and the, the, the power off both the wings. And, you know, it just got me thinking a little bit is when we really got to see um, him against Safin, Hewitt and Roddick. He struggled a little bit 2000 to 2002. True, true. The same true. way that you kind of see... You know, Federer having to problem solve and pick up the young guns today and Sitsipas, Zverev, and team whom he is all either tied or has a losing record against. Yeah, no, those are excellent points. It's true. Uh, yeah, he, he had lost a couple of matches erotic before he beat him. We can talk about the 0-2 Open in a few minutes, but that's yeah. true. He had he lost his first couple of matches to Andy. And and uh, Staffan had, had, had beaten Pete earlier in the summer in Canada in, in 2000 also, saved a match point. Right uh, and 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 squeaked that one out in the final set tie break and he'd had a great summer he was sort of coming on strong and he had some really shaky matches at the open on his way to the final but he kept managing to pull them out he was kind of dangerous in the sense that he he almost didn't care it was like he was fighting he was trying but he he didn't really think he was going to win the tournament I definitely don't think he thought going on the court that day that he was going to win and that that helped him he was loose. And then in turn, I think he served unusually well that day. You talk about Pete in the serve and volley. It's true. Just wasn't quite as sharp, wasn't quite as yeah. quick in her picking off the low volleys or finding the corners with his serve the way he normally does. And Safin, in turn, had a magnificent serving day. That made it, that made it difficult because Pete expected to have a few openings to break Safin. He just wasn't getting, getting chances at all. That, put, that really sort of burdened him. Because uh, that's not the way he thought the match was going to play out. It was definitely, Safin would say later, the problem with Safin would say later, uh, you know, that he, he, he never, he wondered whether he could ever play that well again in his life. He kept talking about that after the match and for into the next year. You know, I'll never play that well again. It he took him four and a half years to play that yeah, way. Until he finally better in Australia and yeah. then do it and won the title. But you wonder, why would you, why would you think that way? His attitude should have been, I played an incredible match against Pete and I really want to see if I can get better. I'm excited about where this could take me, where, where this might lead. He took the totally opposite. Should, yeah. Task. It should have been a bit like Sampras is back in the nineties, like in 1990, like <laughs> where he was, Oh, I play yeah, really well. Maybe surprised. I can become even better than this in the, in the future. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I can get better. Exactly. In 10 years later. Yeah. <laughs> Because I think Safin should have won several majors. I think he should have won at least four or five yeah. majors with his talent. Yeah. And he, and it was pre, you know, before Roger was peaking, it was the time to do it. The Hewitt period yeah. he didn't take advantage yeah. of it. But that was a tough one for Sampras because he'd made a great comeback against Krychek in the quarters at the 2000 Open where he was down 6-2 in the tie break and won six points in a row. 
in the second set. Another one of those comebacks from a set, averaging a second set tiebreak and moving on to victory. That was satisfying given what had happened against, you know, Krychik at Wimbledon in 96. And then he, you know, he wins a semi over Hewitt. And then, then of course, well, we can go to the 2001 Open, I suppose. But then it's funny how it all works out in 2001 that this time he beats Safin in the semis after having yeah. beaten both after beating both Rafter and Agassi, and but he's unable to handle Hewitt in the final. Yeah. That to me yeah. is very appealing because each time the things did not change that much to me with Safin and Hewitt's games. I mean, one year he beats one, one year he beats the other. But he played the he, same way in yeah. both matches. Yeah, yeah, he was flat in both yeah. matches. He really was. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's even more surprising to me retrospectively what happened with Hewitt in the sense that Safin beat him in three straight sets, but, you know, scores you might expect, you know, you're talking about, say, 4-3 and 4. I mean, it was it was respectable. But Hewitt beat him 6-1-1. One, and one. Mm. Now, that yeah. happened, that happens in almost identical to the, to to the, the French, but, but I, that was really surprising. Now, I think maybe it all caught up to him because Sampras had had such a great run. Maybe it was just asking too much to beat first Rafter, who'd won the tournament Pete had last won the Open in 96. Rafter, the 97 and 98 champion, he beats him in the round of 16. Agassi, who won it in 99, and Pete beats him in the epic quarter. Mm. And it really was an epic four sets, all tie breaks, no service breaks. And then then he beats Safin in straight sets, and Safin beat him the year. So he's knocked off all these guys who'd taken yeah. his, who'd succeeded him as the U.S. Open winners. And there he is playing Hewitt, who he's beaten in the semis the year before. But he, I just think there was not quite enough left physically yeah. and definitely not and the emotional energy was gone as well yeah. so it, it it was a strange match in that sense yeah we should talk about the 2002 u.s open and then there's just a couple of legacy questions that i have that will wrap up. let me uh, let me talk about the o2 open if you have any then you might want to play off my response and ask me anything you want but obviously sure. then that he's had his 33 tournament drought from the right. from from the 2000 Wimbledon all the way to, but it's a little misleading because in in between he'd been in that 01, he'd been in both the 2000 and 2001 U.S. Open finals. So it's not like he had collapsed. He still had come close to winning the previous two Opens, and now here he is seated 17th at the 2002 Open, and right. people writing him off, and he'd had the Bastel loss that Vance referred to just a, a short time ago. Uh, which was on out on court two in the second round of Wimbledon was a, one of the most humiliating of his career, a five set loss to a lucky loser guy who'd lost in the qualifying who really should have had no business beating him. But he he was just not he was just down on himself at that point. He'd gone to he'd had Gullickson coach him for a while. And Higueras was with him at this point, and after losing this master battle, he brought Anacom back in the fold. And again, he didn't have a great summer, but he played well enough, got some matches in. And he comes into the open, and the key ma- one of the key matches was the third rounder against Greg Ruzetsky, which he won in five sets. And, and after he beat Ruzetsky, Ruzetsky was kind of insulting and saying, he's not the same player. You think he's this third time, 13-time Grand Slam champion. He's not the same player. He's slower. Yeah. No, he, he, it was very insulting. <laughs> he, he claimed, he, he, Pete said it never really bothered him. He really didn't care what Rosetsky was saying, but the, it got others riled up, and McEnroe would talk about it, and Curry was talking about it. It was a buzz around the grounds, and then Sampras, once again, I think he really his form really picked up from Rosetsky where he played just well enough to win. The four sets over Haas, who was one of the top three seeds, that was a nice win under the lights again to 
crushing Roddick in straight sets. And Roddick, of course, it had the two. It was a two and zero record against him coming yeah, in. No. And uh, that was a big deal to find to beat Andy under the lights. Played a really good match, and it was, only got forty seven percent of his first serves in. But he was second serve was so good, he never got broken, and he was very inspired. And did some fist pumping, and he blitzed Andy in straight, and then beat Sheng Shawkin, who'd had a you know there's a loophole in the draw, and Sheng managed to get himself into the semis. An accomplished player, Dutchman, but he wasn't going to beat Pete and couple of tie breaks and then he closes them out in straight and finally once again who's waiting for him in the final andre mm. agassi what could be more fitting 12 years after their first final in 90 and andre again andre was clearly the favorite he's beaten hewitt the defending champion he's had a much better year overall than pete has in 02 and and yet once again sampras rises to the occasion the first two steps okay. were yeah. in, of the 99 Wimbledon. Then Agassi comes back and wins the third, 7-5, with Sampras serving into the win at 5-6 from the president's box end of the court. And, but he f- salvaged it in four sets. He broke him at four all in the fourth and served it out. And there he, that and proved to be the final tennis match of his career, beating Agassi in the finals of the U.S. Open it's a, for his fifth yeah. U.S. Open and his 14th major. So what could be more fitting yeah, than it's that? It's interesting too, because like, I guess he was also having some sort of resurgence in his career at that, at that point. So it's kind of like was, back in was. the, I guess he was having more success back in 1990 and he was having again, more success back in 2002. And he had again, losing oh, yeah. in the and open. A lot, of thought, a lot of people thought, but I remember there was an interesting comment made by John Newcomb at the time, the Australian, who of course was a U.S. open winner in 73 and he won it as an amateur event in 67, three-time Wimbledon champion, great player from Australia. And he said to a friend of mine prior to the match, one of these guys goes out there hoping he can win, and the other one goes out there believing he will win. Mm. And he, and obviously the former was Agassi and the latter was Sampras. Yeah. And I, I really <laughs> believe that. Sampras didn't really care what Agassi had done over the, earlier in the year or, uh, that he'd played. But this was about a, a U.S. Open final and I'm ready now, and I'm I'm going to do it again. You know, it was just yeah. it was fascinating the way that played out so many times on big occasions and on this court because he beat him in three finals. This one in the '90 and '95, not to mention that quarter in '01. So four times they met on, on hard courts at the Open, what I would consider to be pretty neutral conditions because Agassi yeah. loved hard courts. This was not play, like playing Pete yeah. on the center court of yeah. Wimbledon. This was more neutral, but every time. Sampras won. Top, yeah. Every time. And 2001 was their best match. Oh, by far. By far. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the quality, the quality was, they never played so well against each other. And the fact that Agassi could go through the match and never lose his serve and still right. lose. The fact that Pete could, again, never quite find a way to break Andre, but, and, and also lose the first set tiebreak after being ahead 6-3. Right, right. And yet still psychologically recover and win the last three in breakers. Yeah, that was by far their best match. But I'd say the first two sets of the 0-2 final were very reminiscent of the of really sort of mid mid first set at Wimbledon till the end. It was it was that kind of high quality stuff from Sampras that got him into the a, a convincing lead of two sets to love. All right, so um, Andre, you can delete this part from the podcast. But what I was going to say is that just. Uh... Just wanted to make sure you're cool with the thing because we're going. We're do, we have been so generous with your time, yeah. Steve. But uh, we were. I was just going to think of wrapping it up. Uh, there's just a couple more questions that I that I. Go I'd ahead. Like to ask it. Fine. We've we've gone this far. Just ask what yeah. you need to. Don't worry about sure. me. Let's just do it right and finish it off. Sure. Yeah. Because we've 
we've hit it so well so far. So yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I guess I just want I just wanted to ask you. So we know obviously that was the last match he he ever played after that, and it was obviously a, a you know a difficult one, decision, but one that he came to terms with, and uh, uh, that he eventually he, he left the game on such a high, and uh, you know deserved the he, we know his place in the in the sport now, given your book and everything. But I guess I, I wanted to ask you. So you know we know he's the best Wimbledon player, to or certainly best fast court player in many people's eyes. And he's he was seven and zero in Wimbledon finals. I guess is there an argument that could be made that he's maybe the best U.S. Open player also because he's been in eight finals and he's five and three in those finals. And there's only two other people who have made eight finals, and that's Lendl and Djokovic, and they're three and five each. Yeah, and of course you have Roger and Jimmy at five and two in finals. Yeah, yeah, you could argue it. it, it I just think I, I like to sort of combine the two. I like to look at the fact that he got seven Wimbledons and five Opens in in an right. era. There was such a diversity of competition. The types of people that he had to beat. Obviously, it's hard to compare the years, and these three guys having to go through each other is no small task either. But there's 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 not as many different playing styles. So Sampras was beating, you know, he's beating Agassi in a couple of those U.S. Open finals, but then he's having to deal with, you know, the Krychek types that just were you just yeah. didn't know who you were going to confront. He lost a final to Edberg, who was a great servant volleyer himself. So. And that was true in the Wimbledon years, too. If you look at the finals he played at Wimbledon, he starts off with a, with the finals against Courier, and then he's got to play even Istovich the next year. What could be more diametrical than that? And then he's, it's back to Becker, another great serving volleyer. And then, right. and, you know, and then finally, you know, in, in the last two, 97 was straightforward, good draw. But then 98, back to Gorin again in a harrowing five-setter, followed by... Agassi again in 99 after playing uh, Henman in the semis, who's a servant volleyer. So there, he had to really adjust his game for more a, a different type of opposition more than they did. So I guess my argument is you combine the 7-0 and at Wimbledon with the 5-3 and three at the Open. And I honestly think the 5-3 and three would not have been 5-3 and three had it not been had they had days off like they did in the other mm -hmm. majors. I don't hey. think I honestly believe it would have been more like it. At worst, six and two, and maybe seven and one, because he just was so great. It can't be. It 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 just. It's not an accident to me that he happened to lose a, those three U.S. Open finals because of the scheduling, partially, and the great play of his opponents. Yes, but I think Courier even said in the book he thinks he would have won at least one of those matches against Safin. Safin, I believe that too. Yeah, that, that had it not been for the one day off. So. I'm just saying, it gets back to your original comment, best fast court player ever, in my view. And that's something that McEnroe said in the book as well, John McEnroe. Yeah, yeah I remember reading that. Yeah. And, you know, certainly you touched upon those three, and you have a really, really fascinating chapter in your at the end of your book, talking about, and he came across, obviously, very favorably amongst many, many uh, ex-players yeah. and pundits that, you know, he would do very well against a Nadal on a fast court or against a Federer against you know and he felt pretty comfortable against Roger when he played those exhibitions in 05 yeah. in 07 yeah. and 08 and then yeah. you know it's, yeah. it's a mystery how he would do against Djokovic since obviously it's a very different kind of returner to to Agassi but I'm just picturing a matchup at Wimbledon between Djokovic and, and Sampras and I mean I would watch that any day of the week so I mean what's your assessment of how he would do given the technology and everything is the same and court yeah. speed and all of that Look at it this way. I mean, we saw the 19 Wimbledon final, that epic. I mean, obviously, it's different on different days. But yes. but, but, but Novak and Roger had two five-set Wimbledon finals of the three. Right. And uh, 
they, yeah. Th those matches were so competitive. And then, yeah. that, you know, and, and Roger could well, but Roger not, is not a servant volleyer. Roger's a great yeah. server. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's playing the servant volley tennis he did early in his career. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, I just believe that on the grass that Sampras would have done quite well against all three of them, frankly. And, and there's the argument about, as McInerney said, what about the grass at Wimbledon in, uh, you know, like the floor. Yeah. lower grass these days versus the fast grass? And I think he would have adjusted to that. I've said to a few people, I think he would have had a, um, he would have made these courts look faster than they are. Hmm. Think mm -hmm. about where, the way it's played now. Federer doesn't like to serve in volley much anymore at all. And that's fair enough. He's made that work for him. But they don't they don't play anybody who who scares them that way and breathes down their neck, you know, and you have these guys that you have someone like a, a, a Karlovich lingering out there, but he's not of the same caliber, yeah. same caliber. So you say, so what about an athlete like Sampras? Listen, that court where he played Agassi at the year end championships was not a quick court. Uh, he, you know, he made it look very fast. It wasn't. They'd slowed it down that year. Mm. And yet he still crushed in that final. So I just feel like he would have fared very well. As, and as you noticed, a lot of the experts that I interviewed, the likes of Ivan Istovich and Edberg and the others, yeah. had very, it did have very favorable. And he was very fair-minded himself about how he would have done against them, what would have been tough about it, but where he would have had the confidence himself, how he believed in himself against anybody he played. That was a fun chapter to write. Mm. That was fascinating. And then you also heard Djokovic talk about how uh, his give his point of view of it and how he thinks the spin also, uh, this top spin of Nadal's would have been a challenge. And then yeah, that you know talks I about that. Really generous. I, I like the. I think that's that's a very appealing side of Djokovic. Rather than say, well, I, I would have liked my chances against Pete, and here's why: because he never played a returner like me. And and Sampras had, had, had acknowledged that, that that Novak's return in his mind is the best one ever, even better than Agassi's. But Novak was went out of his way to say, I think that he would have would have. <laughs> Preferred playing me and Roger to playing Rafa, which was in. Then I said to him, what about the grass? He said, oh, well, on the grass, you know. But you see, where I think Novak might be wrong is that uh, Rafa would not have enjoyed playing Pete indoors by any means. Yeah. He doesn't like playing indoors, period. And, yeah. and but the slower grass has not fared that well. He hmm. won his titles when the courts were, were somewhat quicker than they are now, I would argue. But he, I would he, agree, yeah. That, He's had problems with, with aggressive players on the grass for a long throughout time, his yeah. Wimbledon career. Yeah. For a long time, yeah. I believe that the slower grass would have really hindered uh, Sampras that much. And against Novak, again, Novak never faced a, that skilled. He's faced a, a similarly skilled server in Federer in terms of placement, but it's not his biggest serve. And it wasn't, mm -hmm. and Roger's not coming in behind it the way Pete yeah. would have. So I just feel like Sampras yeah. yeah. would have been right. Yeah. He would have been in all of those rivalries. He would have been right in Yeah, there. I think he would have been able to put some pressure on Djokovic's return. I think I was talking maybe to Ivanshu before at hand that... Uh, uh, and you yeah, even mentioned that in, the, in, uh, in our previous podcast, I believe that Agassi's return, even though they're great returners on their own, they return very differently. Uh, as uh, Agassi yes. is a much more aggressive and Djokovic likes to keep the ball yes. in play. And that would have probably favored uh, Sampras quite a bit in his uh, delivery. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. Andre would try, would he'd guess, and then he'd really hit out on those returns, and he'd go for a lot of winners. Mm. Novak is much more about 
getting a lot of percentage returns back into play into awkward positions yeah. to make it tough. So it, it is it is different. He's got more reach. He's got more stretch, as Sampras said. But I think that Sampras would have dealt with that, even though he wouldn't have served as many aces against Djokovic as he did yeah. against Agassi. I still think he would have taken command up at the net. There would have been so much. As Vonch said at the outset of this, it just would have been great fun yeah. to watch the two. Oh, yeah. but it might have been the most fun of, of all these matchups. Maybe the Sampras Djokovic would have been the most fun, although the one against Nadal would not be very far behind. Mm. True. And yeah. I, I guess I, I want to wrap this up by uh, talking about bringing it more to the current day and asking you about, you know, because I, I think uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the next gen and who do you think, like, because we're waiting for a time where we can, you know, ever see someone play like Pete again, because I think his game is just so unique and so, uh, you know, elegant and explosive in its own way. Obviously, the most similar comparison would be a Roger Federer, but it, it's still very different styles at the end of the day. And I'm just curious, like, of the next-gen players or of any of the future players you've seen, I'll give you first my opinion, and then you can you can say what sure. your point of view is. Go ahead. But, uh, you know, in, wa- in watching the U.S. Open and in following uh, all the next-gen stars since, basically, since 2017 or 2018, whenever the, the label was coined, uh, the most, the player that I can see who, in a few years' time, not now, who plays a style closest to Sampras, in my view, would be a guy like Denis Shapovalov with his loose uh, and free type of game, explosive, uh, you know, big pop off the serve and ground strokes. Not doesn't quite have the same conviction and feel for the volleys quite yet, but just watching him play at the U.S. Open and him, you know, in a way coming really close. I know he lost a tough five-set match to Karina Busta, and then you know he would have had definitely had a chance to get to the U.S. Open final. And he too, by the way, another. Interesting parallel was seated 12th. So if he had won yeah. this, it would have been just like the 1990 yeah, U.S. Right. Open for Pete. Right. So, uh, yeah, I see some similarities. Yeah. Although now I just don't see quite see with it. I guess the one yeah. that I think could could have, could get there and end up resembling most is Felix. Mm. Okay. Felix, it, it, because he's such a great athlete, he's not playing that way now. But he might if he evolves yeah. the way I hope he will. I could see him being, and and then there are some components in 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 the other Greek, Mister Stephanos. Yeah. They share the same. They share the same birthday, the same birthday as well. Right. As well. Right. But again, <laughs> you know, one-handed backhand. There's some similarities, and also wanting to take matters in your own hands and be aggressive. And he's Sisipas is very comfortable coming forward. I just don't think he'll ever serve in volley that much. Oh, yeah. It's too bad. Yeah. I'd like to see him develop, but I honestly think it can be done even in today's game. Contrary to what many of the coaches have to say, I, be, I believe it, it can be done if it's done. You know, if the uh, if it's if it's the right play under the right circumstances, we could see that you know a serve and volley or emerge a top notch serve and volley or somebody who does it with regularity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this was a first class book overall, Steve. A huge congratulations to you for yeah. uh, putting this together. And, you know, all the people that you and amount of time, it must have taken you almost two years to really, you know, get this thoroughly, write this thorough examination. Yeah, I'd say I, it was probably close. Yeah, close. I'd say more closer to 18 months. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, I as I say in the early in the book and the, I guess in my introduction, you know, it's, in some ways I felt like I was writing it from the time his career was starting to end. I was it. It yeah. was just something I lived and knew well and 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 so it was a matter of then getting all these interviews done but i'd had a lot of interviews with him while his career was still going on but 
we did a bunch of them for this, and then getting all those other players and gathering the material. I, I, it, it, it went by fast because I enjoyed it so much. And anything else you'd, you'd like to add before we... No, I think I, we covered it really comprehensively. I enjoyed it immensely. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Steve, for uh, your time here with us. Uh, obviously, thank you so much for writing such a masterpiece as uh, this book on Pete Sampras. And uh, I think I will enjoy reading it and reading it again and just um, probably get, get, get a, a whole new perspective when, when uh, re-watching old matches and old highlights from his career. And uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Vansh, again, also for uh, having so much insight as well. And uh, yeah, uh, I would just like to thank you once more. And you're always welcome in this podcast. And um, for the listeners out there, make sure you get a copy. I, I'm pretty sure that we've convinced you that this book is more than worth reading <laughs> and that you should have read it by now. And uh, yeah, that was uh, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited by um, Steve Flink. And um, yeah, we'll see you all guys later. Thank you guys so much for being here. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>